Abraham is in the book of Judges. Now, just to be awkward, I'm going to go one book past Judges to get it in a kind of time context. And um, I want you to look at the book of Joshua. I'm just going to mention it. And I've kind of give you the main points, the mega themes, the big ideas in Joshua. And when you look in the graphic there, you begin to see that actually Joshua is quite a positive kind of book. Um, there's victory and there are vivid pictures. But, and what you learn, what you discover in, in the book of Joshua is that if you want success, then you've got to obey God's master plan. You've just got to go with God. And for victory, simply trust in him. Now, that sounds so simple, whether you're an Israeli army or whether you're a single Christian in Bonaire. For victory, trust in God. Sounds simple, but why is it so hard? Looking backward in time, the Israelites could see God fulfilling promise after promise within their nation. And that, you know, should bring confidence to them uh, for, the, for the now and for the future events. Now, faith is something which begins with believing that God can be trusted. And Joshua was a great leader. I would say he was a God listener. He listened to God. And whatever God said, Joshua acted quickly under his instruction and direction. What happens with the Israelites, the Jews, they, all, they always seem to have an initial dose of enthusiasm. They get quite excited. But, and there's always a but, the initial enthusiasm with God soon wanes, soon tails off. And then you ask the question, well, what now? So personally, we as Christians, just like Israel, we need to apply God's instructions to every corner of our lives if we want to understand what is victory and what is success in the Christian's life. So Joshua, very positive. Look at the words. Conquest, leadership, guidance, faith, success, now let me put on judges and we have all the D's. We've got decay, we've got defeat, repentance, deliverance and decline. So there's a great contrast between the book of Joshua, all positive victories and so on. But as soon as we, we turn that page and we hit uh, the book of Judges, it's as if there's a big cloud over everything. And everything becomes dark. So, when Joshua led the people into the promised land, there was, um, they were told to get rid of anyone who was in the land. Uh, one of the problems was that they would uh, burn smaller cities and towns. But if there was a hill city, something that could be defended, they would just keep it. So they began to, to uh, adapt God's command to suit themselves. And uh, 
And things are starting to go wrong, and they are definitely going wrong in the book of Judges. Now, when we think about the Israelites, we often think about uh, Jerusalem. But I want you to think about some place further up called Hazar. That's going to crop up time and time again. It's a big city. Um, it was captured by uh, Joshua and the Jews, and it was burnt. Uh, Joshua chapter 11, peace breaks out. But here's the important part, point. The land was never fully conquered. They left people in various places and they didn't do anything to them as enemies. As enemies of God, they just left them there. They adapted God's commands. So, previous inhabitants were never fully driven out. That's what God wanted. That's what God expected. But you see, God's people failed time and time again in that task. And Israel was sowing the seeds of further problems in the promised land. So, we're into, still into Joshua. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods... He will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. Here's a warning without any ambiguity. And there's a reply in verse 21. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Here's a positive answer in verse 21 of chapter 24. And also verse 24, the answer is repeated. And here we have this kind of, well, it looks like things are going all right. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. And that's exactly what you want, a positive picture in Joshua. Two important characteristics here, service and obedience. We will serve God and we will be obedient to God. That was the two aims. And everything is pointing to a wonderful relationship in the promised land. It's easy to say that we are obedient. You see, you don't speak it, you live it. Your obedience is not something you talk about. Obedience is something you show in your living. So, 3,000 years later, we still don't talk obedience. We've got to live it. And so, as we move on, and the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And obey him. Positive picture, service and obedience. It's easy to say we're obedient. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem and they took it. And they put the city to the sword and set it on fire. This is kind of what God wants. This is encouraging. They are beginning to do what uh, God demands. But we're only just in chapter 1 of Judges, verse 8. But as you get on a bit, look at what's going on in chapter 2. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. I find that such a sad verse. Everything that God had done, one generation, that 
youthful generation has been totally neglected. There's utter failure and there's ignorance. They don't know anything about God. No, is there not a responsibility generations have to pass the word of God and about God on? So, when great leaders like Joshua, he held the people together and he focused the people on God. Joshua took leadership when he was 75 and he died when he was 110. Hard-working, faithful and tough leader. Joshua, an old man, literally worked till he dropped. But you see, he dropped as a faithful servant of God. Tasks absolutely completed. Now that's a message for every one of us. But sadly, Joshua's influence only lasted one generation. We have that sad verse, Judges 2 and 10. The people who were in touch with Joshua, they're doing, what are they doing for the next generation? The answer is absolutely nothing. Parents had failed their children. They made them ignorant of the Lord. And you know, you can't help thinking about the responsibility we have for children. And... uh, Passing on the word of God to them. How little does our next generation know about God? Something needs to be done. Then the Lord raised up judges. So we're in chapter 2 here. As a result of great distress, the Lord does something about it. And the Lord raises up judges. And there's an interesting but. I like but. Chapter 2, verse 19. But when a judge died, the people just went absolutely crazy. The people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. Following other gods and serving and worshipping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Can you see that the, the words here, they returned to even more corrupt The slide is greater. They're not going back to where they were before. They're they're going back to something which is much, much worse. And uh, leadership controlled the people. But when the leadership was gone, it was a free-for-all. And very much a downward progression away from God into ignorance. Where's that word obedience? The people who, not so many years before... We're saying, we'll serve you and we'll be obedient to you. Look where they are. So, God did something about it. And um, if you look at the top, next to the Sea of Galilee, that's where Deborah was. Now, the interesting thing is that all the judges didn't kind of... uh, Every, every judge didn't kind of rule the whole land from, say, Jerusalem or something like that. They all kind of worked, many of them, just in local areas. And there are 12 judges that were interested in, and they worked over a period of about 150 years. There's one of them, when we don't know how many years he worked. But if you read the book of uh, Judges, you, you come across a man called Ehud, he, he actually gave 80 years of service as a judge. 
But he only gets 19 verses in chapter 3. So 19 verses represent 80 busy years for God. So what we are really seeing in the book of Judges are snapshots of each judge's life. Now, the judges were very much a a mixed bunch. And uh, some of them you would call them as saviors and redeemers. Some are administrators, administrators. Some are hard-working people in the government, if you like, local heroes. Some are powerful. Some are famous. Others just bring a, a, a period of, of peace uh, and quiet in the land. And uh, when people talk about judges, they go for the big names, the Gideons uh, and the Samsons. I hope you can see Deborah, 40 years of service as a judge in, in the promised land. 40 years. <coughs> the judges are mixed bunch. Deborah judges four. And it's interesting that Othniel in chapter three, the first judge, and Deborah, they both served 40 years. And they are the two who had whole nation influences. The others were very much local. So the important thing about Deborah is she was the leader of the nation, of the people. And uh, so she served 40 years. There she is. And there she is at the top. Right. Now, when you look at some of the judges and what they do, you begin to see that some of them are local heroes. There's leaders of the nation. There's Deborah. Some were just hardworking who just got on with it and really didn't get much of a, a mention or a, a notice. Famous and powerful, you've got Samson uh, and so on. So um, they're quite a mixed bunch of what they are and what they did. So actually the office of a judge stems back to Exodus uh, 18. Moses uh, appointed judges to help him and just to uh, assist him in resolving disputes amongst the people. Deborah is the only female judge. But there's something else unique about her. She was the only judge to be considered a prophet or a prophetess. Deborah is one of the most famous women in the Jewish Hebrew Bible. In chapter 5, Deborah is referred to as a mother of Israel. A mother of Israel. She became the national leader. And the strange thing about it, she did it on her own. There was no sort of uh, husband behind her who really helped her and got her into position, although she was married. So there was no real male influence in her life. The only very little we know about her, she's married, uh, married to a man called Lapidoth. Lapidoth. And uh, that's her husband's name. But after that, he's had his moment of fame And he's gone. It's all about Deborah. And uh, here's a very important point. Deborah did what she did out of her own merit. Out of her own merit. 
She didn't live in the shadow of her husband as other well-known people did. It's Deborah who's very much in the spotlight over a period of 40 years. It's now about 100 years since the Israelites went into the promised land. It's uh, about 1150 BC. So, what I want to show you now is the some of the characteristics of Deborah. And uh, what a woman. At times she could be quite fiery if she needed to. She stoked the boil as well. And uh, she was a great woman of courage. She was married, a leader, mother of Israel. A great warrior, judge and strategist. But she was also a poet. Also a poet. And uh, uh, had many facets to her character. So... I want to show you something interesting between chapter 4 and chapter 5. They both refer to the same battle that Deborah is involved. It's the same event, but it's viewed from different points of view. In chapter 4, we have a historical. So chapter 4 is historically correct about the battle and about God and what uh, Deborah was doing. But actually, when you come to chapter 4, it's still about the same thing. But chapter 5 is a poet's point of view, and as well as a poet, it's a hymn. And you'll find Deborah and someone else singing this victory hymn. So I'll do chapter 4, if you promise you'll do your homework for chapter 5 and have a look at the song that Deborah wrote and uh, I defy the musicians to get a tune for it <laughs> in chapter 5. So the same event, chapter 4 is the history, chapter 5 is a poetic rhyming uh, hymn uh, about the whole thing. Right, so let's move on. <coughs> chapter 4. After Ehud, he was the other, uh, the, one of the uh, judges. He died. Again, look what happens. The Israelites did evil in the sight of the God. He spent 80 years as a judge, and then things fell apart. And notice the, word, one, the words once again in verse 1. There's a change in the lifestyle, but there are consequences in verse 2. The very people in Israel who showed mercy and pardon by sparing the lives of many of the Canaanites, yet these people become the very tool of oppression for 20 years. You thought in Egypt they had left all that behind, but they're just going into a 20-year period where they are sold as slaves. Once again, they've come a full circle because of their failure and their attitude towards God, God punishes them with a 20-year uh, spell. The Israelites had turned their backs on these people. But you know, you would thought they would have kept an eye on the Canaanites. Because what you discover in chapter 4 is the people that the Jews saved, they were busy. And you come across a section in chapter 
where the Canaanites had built 900 chariots of iron. And that gave them total control and domination in the land. And uh, you would have thought they would have noticed and done something about it. They just left them to build. Then this is terrible. So the Lord sold them. Imagine that. Sold them in the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. That's that city uh, to the north of the Sea of Galilee. So things are going terribly wrong uh, here. And we are at a period of 20 years of utter cruelty and oppression by the Canaanites, those people who were already in the land. Instead of dealing with them, they now have become so strong that they are controlling and leading and their masters. And now they have become slaves again. After 20 years, they're crying for help. And uh, here's the sort of uh, kind of interesting, I think. The Israelites were sold to the king of Cana. And you have uh, a commander. Well, first on the left, Jabin is the king who lived in Hazor. And there's a commander of the army, Sisera, who lived in that. Now, I don't know if you can pronounce it, but I can't. It, it seems like a couple of Welsh words to me, but um, I can point it out in the map there, the right-hand map. Um, so we have the Canaanites in control, the king, and a very strong uh, and wise commander, Sisera. Okay. So after 20 years, they cried for help. And it's time for God to put the judges um, he will have. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. And if you've got 900 chariots, you're very much in control of things. They A mechanised army, a high-tech army compared to the Israelites. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. I just like, I love that verse. It just kind of, oh, by the way, you know, Deborah was in control here. It just, she just happened to be leading uh, Israel at that time. So into this picture of slavery and misery and utter defeat comes this woman, Deborah. So what does she do? She said, okay. If the Canaanites have got a general in their army, we've got one also, and his name is Barak. And uh, she sent for him. The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, uh, and he has to come. Deborah is very much in control. And the, the place, the interesting thing is this, that uh, Deborah receives God's call to battle. But in this verse here, read of this man, what a sad man he is. He said, well, I'll be obedient on condition. He tries to bargain with Deborah and he tries to bargain with God. Notice the word if. Um, he said, 
if you go with me. He hadn't got the confidence to go on himself. You know, when's a man going to be a man? He's general of the army of the Israelites, and there's going to be a battle. And he says, oh, you come with me, please, you know. Uh, and he tries to bargain. Uh, and he, he has more confidence in Deborah than in the words of command from the Lord. He's got something to learn that it's our Lord who is sovereign. He who reigns over all. And it's he who's going to accomplish his purposes. And uh, with us or without us. I think Barak is an absolute failure. What a man. And uh, he failed to realize that it's God who sets the conditions. And Barak goes ahead almost holding the hand of Deborah. And so we come to an important mountain. Remember all these 900 chariots? Well, they were fine on the flat lands surrounding here, but they couldn't get up the mountain. So it was decided that the army would come together and get into the mountain uh, where they would be safe. So Mount Tabor, Mount Tabor is about 1,300 feet, 396 metres. So it's not uh, anything great. But in comparison to the flat land, it's easy to defend and uh, chariots have got no hope. So if you notice where Tamar is, uh, Tabor, it's very much near uh, the Galilee, uh, the Sea of Galilee. So there's lots of New Testament sort of Capernaum, Galilee, Tiberias, Gennesaret, Bethsaida, Cana, Nain. Nain is all around that area. So we're in kind of familiar territory. And let me kind of show you the, the battle map. So if you follow the blue line down from Mount Tabor, uh, Tabor uh, that's the direction the Israelites are coming. And if you follow the red line from the bottom, <coughs> that's the direction in which the uh, Canaanites and the 900 chariots are coming. So they're going to meet head on uh, in this. And so the battle map is, is drawn. But the interesting thing is, can you see the river that runs across? So whatever happens, somebody's got to go across the river. And this river sometimes is a, a trickle of, of water. You hardly see it. And if there had been rain in the mountains, uh, it would be a raging torrent. And uh, the, any low-lying areas would be uh, flooded and waterlogged. And if you go to chapter 5, to the, the, the song, we've got poetry and a hymn of praise uh, with this battle. And in verses 4 and 5, it tells you what's happening. The earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. So God is doing his bit in this battle. And there's so much water about that the river has flooded. And the land either side is absolutely drenched with water. And... Uh, so, four and five. Then Deborah said, Go, this is the day the Lord has given you. 
into his hand. They went down from the mountain followed by 10,000 men. Men on foot, just with a sword and maybe a shield in comparison to the, the might of the, uh, the, the chariots. And uh, verse 14, the Lord has given, has, has not the Lord gone ahead of you? And isn't that not true in our Christian lives? Yeah, God goes ahead of us. And uh, so, very well, Deborah says, I'll go with you at the front of the army. But because the, the way you're going about this, the honour will not be yours. So when the battle was over, it wasn't the general who got the praise and the honour. It was Deborah. She was there leading it. So, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And... Uh, he was so confident, the, the Canaanites, with the, the might of these chariots, they would thunder along. And um, they got stuck in the mud in that river. God had overflowed it. And they were bogged down. And they couldn't move. And what does the... the um, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and he fled on foot. So plan B is leg it. Just get away. Get out of the way. He probably had the best well-serviced chariot and the best of horses, but it was no good. He too was bogged down. While Cicero was fleeing, his people were dying. All the troops of Cicero fell by the sword. Not a man was left. But Cicero... Um, However, fled on foot to the tent of jail. And um, so everything's going wrong. And he fled. The tent of jail was a kind of a Bates motel, if you know your Hitchcock films. And uh, a warm welcome awaited him in verse 18. And uh, jail went uh, out to meet Cicero and said to him, Come, come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. <laughs> so he entered the tent and she put a covering over him. He's very tired from the battle. And um, you can see that just to the east of, Mount, of the mountain is where uh, he fled. So, great impressions. A warm welcome. A welcome at the door. Come right in. Don't be afraid. What a mistake. You need to know who your friends are. And uh, he even actually got an upgrade. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk. Nothing too good for this guest. And um, in verse 20 in the uh, doorway of the tent, he said, if someone comes by and asks you if anybody's here, you just say no. He thought the enemy was outside. But actually the enemy was inside. So he was reassured and he fell fast asleep, exhausted from the day's battle. But the hotel staff was still on shift. And verse 21, the woman jail, uh, she, women in those days in uh, 
people who lived in tents, the women would take the tents down and put the tents up. So tent pegs and, and hammers and so on were very much part of their, their lives. And uh, we come to verse 21. She picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he was fast asleep, exhausted. <coughs> she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and guess what? He died. So what the Israelites couldn't do, she did it on her own uh, here um, with a hammer and peg. And uh, post-mortem would say he died of a headache. And uh, as they tried to lift him, he kept going round in circles. You have to think about that one. Um, tent peg one side of his brain out the other and well into the ground. And th there we are. We've got this wonderful leader of God's people and a great victory. And the people came back to God. But there was still one person, the king, who, uh, and they eventually found him. And... Uh, Chapter 5 ends in wonderful words. And it says this, that the land had peace for 40 years. And all we can say is, well done, Deborah. And uh, so, if you have time, read chapter 5. But as we recap, let's just think about what we see. Victory or defeat, obedience to God's master plan always brings victory. And as Christians today, are we part of the plan? And we are, we are expected to contribute to God's plan. And more than initial enthusiasm is required. Israel often started well. Judges and Joshua show that. But they tail off. They're distracted. They lose focus. They change the rules to suit themselves. But what this chapter says, initial enthusiasm is not enough. We discover God's tasks and we don't have to say if or but God. We don't have to say no. If we're given a challenge, a task to do, then just do it. The Bible said no ifs or buts, unlike Balak. We need to see it. Acknowledge this from him and respond. So you see it, you start it and you complete the task. And you wait for the next one coming along. And those two words, service and obedience. The great lessons in obedience is how to obey, whom to obey and when to obey. And obedience indicates that we are dwelling in Christ and that he deals that he lives in us. And our next generation, what is it we're doing for them? Judges scream at us the responsibility we have for the next generation to understand about the Lord and what he has done for Israel in this case. Challenge for every one of us. And I can't help thinking that people like Deborah and Joshua are God's listeners says this passage, listen to God and respond to him. Strong leadership, so important. 
brought a God focus. When the leadership was not there, the people perished. And Barak was hiding behind Deborah. Who are we hiding behind? Are we standing ahead above anyone else in the parapet? Are we ready for the battle? Are we ready for God's task? Ready for the spiritual task ahead? And then a wonderful thought about this passage. The Lord, as always, is prepared. The task was handed down to Deborah and then to Barak. But God, how he moved these two armies to that exact point where they could have victory. It's marvellous. The Lord is prepared. And also God sets the conditions of the task. He's never surprised or unprepared is God. God sets the condition of each task and he's, he seeks us to be with him. No ifs and buts from our prayers or from our meditation in the Lord. Let's strive for tasks completed. Let's experience victories over spiritual battles in our own lives and in that of our church. So there we have it. So you've got a hymn to get to know in chapter 5. Thank you for listening. <coughs> now we're going to go into a time of communion.